talked about a lot. He's sort of an icon of many, many things. I'm gonna try and get to one or two of those things each time. Um, and today I'm gonna to start with his beginnings. Um, and for those who know some of the story, the rock-headed or hearted rabbi is an allusion to one of the stories that we'll read soon. Um, so here's a breita from Masechet Psachim, which means it's a statement attributed to Tanaim, of whom Rabbi Akiva is one. So it's more or less around the time of Rabbi Akiva, and it comes in the context of a series of statements about sort of the conflict between the rabbis and what they call Amei Ha'aretz, the sort of unlearned people of the land. Not necessarily like, not religious, right? Jews who were not punctiliously observant of specific sets of laws and had a kind of antagonistic relationship with the rabbis in general about like, who should really be in charge of my life, you could say. Maybe that's a little anachronistic way of saying it, but okay. So Rabbi Akiva says, Tanya Amar Rabbi Akiva, the source one. Kishehayiti Am Ha'aretz. When I was in Am Ha'aretz, Amarti, I used to say, Mi yitain li talmid chacham. Would so, I wish that somebody would give me a talmid chacham, v'anashchenu kechamor, and I would bite him like a donkey. Okay, so there are many interesting things here, right? For our purposes, the reason I put this first is Rabbi Akiva apparently has a backstory, right? Before he's Rabbi Akiva, he was an Am Ha'aretz. And not only did he not know anything, he presents himself as antagonistic to the rabbis, right? I wish that I could have a rabbi so I could bite him like a donkey. Now, like the Gemara, right? Apparently Rabbi Akiva's backstory is kind of assumed. Nobody's like, wait a minute, you're an Am Ha'aretz, right? So we're going to get into that story in a little bit. But his students say to him, Rebbe, and more kakav, what do you mean bite like a donkey? Like what kind of a thing is that to say? Like when I think of animals that bite, it's not really usually a donkey. And he says, Amar lehem And he's true. He's like, yeah, dog bites man is kind of a more common story, but actually donkey bites are more serious, right? Donkeys really injure you if they bite you. They might not bite you that often, but when they do, they're gonna break your bones. Um, so he's, he's basically saying, I chose this strange um, analogy, simile for myself, like a donkey on purpose to show just how vicious I wanted to be towards the rabbis, okay? So this is an interesting opener. This isn't, if this is really a bright, this is one of the earlier sources we have about Rebbe Akiva's sort of background, um, where he came from. It, seems like he was not a scholar and then he became one, right? He was an anti-scholar and then he became one. Um, so what we're gonna do today is sort of explore a variety of the ways of telling that story. How did Rabbi Akiva go from somebody who wanted to bite the rabbis like donkey, like a donkey, to somebody who was himself a rabbi? So we're starting with, we know Rabbi Akiva has some kind of a backstory. We're gonna look at various presentations of his story I just want to sort of acknowledge at the outset that we don't know, like these stories were constructed over time. They reflect something behind them. I'm not telling them to say like, this is the con the literal words that Rabbi Akiva said to his wife, for example. I don't know. The point is, this is, the, this is trying to teach us something about Rabbi Akiva as a person. And by extension, when we say these kinds of things about Rabbi Akiva, we're talking about what kinds of people are we sort of looking up to in, um, you know, in the Talmud? Who are the, what are the rabbis sort of 
valorizing or venerating. Um, okay, so here we have a passage from Avot de Rabbi Natan. I would say there's kind of two families of Rabbi Akiva origin stories. Um, one is like this, for, for what we're about to read. The other is a story perhaps more famous about Rabbi Akiva and his wife. We will get there, but we're not there yet. Um, here's a story from Avot de Rabbi Natan. Avot de Rabbi Natan is a midrash, let's call it. It's usually um, contained in the collection of what's called Masachtot Kitanot, um, sort of, they're not really part of the Mishnah, but they're often grouped with the Mishnah. Avot de Rabbi Natan has much later material than just the Mishnah, and it's basically structured around more or less Masachet Avot, especially, right, Pirkei Avot. So Pirkei Avot is in the Mishnah. Avot de Rabbi Natan is sort of like a non-Mishnaic text that has some old elements that are sort of very closely connected to the Mishnah, some longer expansions, some that's later, some that's earlier. It has two versions. This story actually appears in both versions slightly differently. We're just going to look at version A, cleverly and creatively named, Nusra Aleph, version A. Version B is called version B. So here we are in version A, right? And much of Avot Yerabi Natan is actually explicitly in conversation with our Mishnayot that we know from Pirkei Avot, or that we can see in Pirkei Avot. For example, right? Have they meet a faith of right? You should become dirty in the dust of their feet, is a quote from Ravot 1-4, like Perak Aleph Mishnah Dalid, which we, some people had the custom to read a few weeks ago, between Pesach and Shavuot, right? The they there is Talmidei Chachamim, right? It's advice to people to sort of become dirty in the dust of the feet of scholars, meaning you should sort of make personal sacrifices in order to study with scholars. That's what it seems to, be, seems to me, right? So the Avodir of Natanah's functioning is kind of a commentary on that Mishnah. And it says, oh, you should become dirty with the dust of their feet. This is first to Rabbi Eliezer. The second half of the Mishnah, or this next claim in the Mishnah, Bishop Tabit and drink with thirst their words, that's Rabbi Akiva. So we have we have Avodir of is sort of explicitly in dialogue with this Mishnah from Pirkei Avot that's sort of ex encouraging people to sort of become thirsty students of scholars. There's a story of Rabbi Eliezer, which is very, very interesting and not for us, which is similar to the Rabbi Akiva origin story. It appears only in Avot Rabbi Natan. Basically, it's about to tell a story of both of them sort of starting from nothing and becoming great scholars. So we're interested in the Rabbi Akiva part for now. Okay, what were the origins of Rabbi Akiva? Mahayat chilatol Rabbi Akiva. Amru ban Amru, they said, Ben Arba'im Shanahaya, he was 40 years old, below Shana Klum, right? He was 40 Shana old, and he had not Shana learned Mishnah at all. He knew nothing, okay? Meaning, and 40 is kind of, you know, a nice round number. It's like he's a real adult. He's made it to middle age, and he doesn't know anything. One time, he was there. He was standing at the mouth of a well. Amar, mi chakak evenzu. Who sort of carved or otherwise smooth, maybe smooth this stone? So right? he started off, one time he was at the well, he knew nothing, and he saw a stone that had been kind of smoothed out by the water, it seems, right? So it seems like right, there's a stone, it's near a well, and the, the shape of the stone has been changed by the water. If the use of the word carved suggests maybe it's like a little like, you know, channel for the water that goes into it has been created. And he said, right, who carved a hole in this stone? 
Now, I don't know if he's genuinely wondering or it's kind of a rhetorical question himself, but he seems to have said it out loud because the people there say, They said that's from the constant drip, drip, drip of the water, right? Like there's maybe it's under somewhere, you know, you hang up the bucket and it drip, drips, and underneath there's like a little indentation in the stone or something like that. So they said the water that's always on it has caused it to change its shape. And then they said, Don't you know, means, don't you know the pasuk, water erodes stone from Eo? So it seems like, right, his ignorance is, at this point, it's almost presented as his ignorance of the text maps onto sort of naivete about reality, where there are things he doesn't know about the world right? He's sort of like 40 years old, and he notices for the first time that water can erode stone. And then somebody's like, well, if you were paying attention in Hebrew school, you would have known that before. Um, I don't know that's an anachronism, but you know, that's sort of what the suggestion is, right? Miyad, immediately, Rabbi Akiva was what they say, Dan Akalvachomer, which means he sort of a kavahomer is a formal type of logical structure that appears in the Gemara a lot, right? He sort of engaged in this formal logical process, and he said, wait, regarding himself, right? if this soft thing, this water, which is like sort of, we don't think of it as strong, can form the hard thing, the rock, right? then the words of Torah, which are not soft, which are hard like iron, which is an interesting metaphor, right? All the more so, they should be able to sort of, they should be able to carve or form something into my lave, my heart, but we'll get back to that in a second, which is flesh and blood. So basically, right, if the water can form, can reform the rock, so the Torah should be able to reform me. So I think a few things. First of all, his heart, right? I called it the rock-headed rabbi, right? Um, because the heart is the seat of the intellect in this time in history, right? When people say their heart, they don't necessarily mean their feelings, although it could be part of it. They also mean their ideas and their thoughts, like what we would call our head, right? So it seems like he's saying, right, over time, the water has made a change. So I could also learn Torah. My question is, what has prevented him from learning Torah thus far that all of a sudden this moment makes him change his mind? Yeah, Sharona. Um, it sounds to me like fear. Fear of what? Perhaps he was not the earliest developer and he became convinced that he was not capable of learning these things. Right, like and maybe then... he had some early experience or early lack of experience that convinced him that this was not an option for him, right? Maybe he never went to school or maybe he went to school and he was bad at it and he sort of got more and more stuck in that. And then he sees your past does not determine your future, right? What's happened to me in the past, right? Even a stone can change over time. I can certainly change, right? And I think that sort of possibility of flexibility and change is going to be a personality trait that carries through in many of the other stories that we're going to see and is part of what makes him such a sort of a strong persona even for the other rabbi um it's his sort of well it's not like he's like oh 
I'm an ignoramus now. I could change and become a rabbi, and then being a rabbi is a static thing, and I'm just going to be a scholar. Even as he's a scholar, he's always willing to adapt and take on new ideas or new thoughts or new positions or new perspectives or whatever it is. We'll get there. But he has this moment where sort of, and I think it's also not an accident that there is a verse in this exchange, right, where people say to him, don't you know this verse? It's almost like this aha moment for him of like, oh, maybe he never had success or opportunity to study before, but maybe he also never thought it mattered. And somebody was like, actually, the world and these texts are related to each other, right? The things that you're noticing might have been things that you would know more about if you had studied, right? You don't just sort of have to encounter the world blind. You can encounter the world through the, through the Torah, and that will give you added information. So he sort of has this moment, and he decides to change. For a second, I want to return also to our first text, right? And this is, you know, again, it's a little bit of like armchair psychoanalyzing. I'm not psychoanalyzing necessarily Rabbi Akiva, the person, so much as Rabbi Akiva, the character, as presented here. And the character, right, has so much bitterness towards the rabbi. It's almost like that bitterness itself is part of what he has to let go here, perhaps, right? The bitterness maybe comes from a feeling of exclusion or jealousy even, and he's willing to sort of change his, not only acknowledge that he can change intellectually and learn new things, but that he can totally change like things that he staked his identity on. I used to stake my identity on being anti-rabbi, and now I'm going to stake my identity on actually learning Torah. And that's what he's going to do. So he goes to start studying Torah. He's 40 years old. And he went with his son and they sat down by the school teacher. So this detail of him having a son here is going to be kind of critical because as some people may know, right, there's another version of this story where he starts to study as a pact when he gets engaged. So again, you could say, oh, well, he must have gotten married twice. Or you could say these stories are all trying to get at some idea, right? There's something, he got married once and that, that's the wife who made him learn Torah. And then he went to learn with his son. He had a son from a previous marriage. I, I'm not interested in putting together those details, but the idea is, He's a grown man and he's sitting with a little kid in school. Somebody asked, does this happen at the well? Have to do with, our, um, with other encounters that we know of at the well? I think so, right? The well is where you meet your bride often, right? Um, and certainly there's also, right, so maybe there is, there is in many texts, right, the idea of the Torah being the bride of the student of it, especially a male student. I think there's also, we're going to see soon another sort of water metaphor um, it's interesting that he talks about the Torah as iron, but we're going to see more water metaphors in Rabbi Akiva's life, I'll put it that way. Um, so he goes there, he starts studying Torah, he says, Rabbi, teach me. They took hold of one, he and his son are each holding one end of the tablet, which is also kind of interesting in terms of it, it sort of resonates a little bit with like the handing over of the Aser wrote, you know, the Ten Commandments, right? So he teaches him Aleph um, the, the rabbi writes Aleph Bet and he learns it, then he writes Aleph Taf, right? It's sort of Aleph Bet is the first two, then Aleph through Taf is all the alphabet. Then he teaches him words, then he teaches him Torah Kohanim is um, Leviticus, Vayikra, which is sort of traditionally where students, where children start to learn and is chosen for children because of, I think Rashi quotes this, but it's Yavo Tohorim Vilmadu Tohorim, right? Let them come pure and let them study pure subjects of purity. Rabbi Akiva is no longer right, a pure innocent school child, but he's still starting from where they start, right? And then he learned the whole Torah. 
presumably this means the whole like written Torah, not like he knew all of the information there is to know in the world that we would call Torah nowadays. So he learned the whole Torah. And then, right, there's a there's an order of what you learn, right? You this appears in Pirkei Avot and other times for teaching children. You learn Mikra, right, the sort of written Torah, then you learn Mishnah, then you learn analysis of the Mishnah and other stuff. Okay. So he's learned the written Torah. He's learned how to read and now he's learned the written Torah. And now he wants to continue into the oral Torah. So he halach v'yashav l'fnei Rabbi Eliezer v'lifnei Rabbi Yoshua. So he goes and sits before Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Yoshua, who are sort of two of the, the main sages of the prior generation of Tanaim. Hamar lahem, rabotai, pitchuli ta'am mishnah. And he says, open for me the sense of the mishnah, right? Which is a sort of really interesting way of saying that. He doesn't say, teach me mishnah. He says like, help me into the actual like meaning or understanding of the mission. Right? So they would tell him one thing and he would go and sit in the corner and think over every single detail of that thing. Since you have it in front of you, I'm not going to read all the words because this is a long story. I just looked at the time. Um, he would think over the detail, right? Why is this letter here? Why did they say this exactly this way? And he kept coming back and asking them these very, very detailed questions until the teachers had nothing to say, right? So, right, even though they know more than him, he's brought a type of perspective that they don't know. A similar motif comes up in a story that's not on this source sheet, which many people may have heard of, of Rabbi um, Akiva, sorry, a story about Moshe and Rabbi Akiva, where Moshe, the, the Midrash says, Moshe goes up to heaven, he's ready to get the Torah, and God's like, oh, just one second. And he's like, what do you mean? What are you waiting for? And God's like writing, as it were, the little sort of um, crowns, like the little tags that go up on the letters in the, in the Sefer Torah, which we have nowadays also. And Moshe's like, what's that for? Right? And has this, oh, somebody, a, a lot after you, somebody's going to come and sort of sort of derive mountains of halacha from these little lines, right? The same idea of Rabbi Akiva being very detail-oriented in a way that nobody was before him. So he comes, and I would say that's probably related to the fact that he's coming as an outsider. He's coming with a perspective that they don't have, okay? Um, so he keeps coming back, and his teachers don't have anything to say to him, even though they're still his teachers, right? They know more than him, but they don't have his perspective. Rabbi Shimon ben Elazar said, I'll give you a parable to tell you what this was like. Like a stone cutter. So again, we're back to rock. We're going to have rocks and, um, rocks and rivers again. Rocks and water are going to meet each other again in this analogy. A stone cutter who was hacking away at the mountains. One time he took his pickaxe in his hand and went and sat top, on the top of the mountain and began to ship away small stones. Some people came by and said, what are you doing? He said, I'm going to uproot the mountain and throw it into the Jordan. They said, you can't uproot the entire mountain, but he kept hacking away until he came to a big boulder. Okay, so meaning, it's very nice. You're like, oh, look, I'm making progress. I'm getting through the gravel at the top of the mountain. Then you start to get to the real rock, like, you know, the big rocks. You might say, oh, this project was ill-conceived. I can't actually uproot the mountain. Or you might be like, great, get me a bigger pickaxe, right? Um, so he said, um, so he gets to the boulder, so he wedged himself underneath it and pried it loose, and he threw it into the Jordan. And he said, okay, he said to him, you don't belong here, you belong there. This is what Rabbi Akiva did to Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Tarfon. So this is obviously a slightly different sort of tradition. It's not about Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Yoshu anymore. It's Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Tarfon, another one of the sages of the time. 
Rabbi Tarfan said, Akiva, this verse is about you. He stops up the stream so that hidden things may be brought to light. Right? Okay. Verses from Job are from Job are like notoriously obscure and hard to understand, so they make for great midrashim. Um, so here's one. Rabbi Akiva, this is what Rabbi Tarvan says about him. Things that are kept secret from people. Rabbi Akiva kind of opened them up. So we have another water stone metaphor. Rabbi Akiva thinks, initially he thinks, okay, right, just as water can gradually change stone at the well, I can change my mind and my heart. And he kind of never stops that. He doesn't stop when he's like sort of the nice domesticated rock at the well with a little indent in it from the water, he sort of keeps pushing that same idea of, I can change myself, my cure, I can little by little keep learning and change my total understanding of the world to the point where he's challenging his own teachers and in some ways undoing their whole world, right? But the teachers themselves praise him for it. One thing that we can think about now and not talk about today, but think about for next time is not everybody who shows up as an outsider, even if they become very learned, can then successfully challenge the way that things have been done until now, right? You can't always just show up in an academy and be like, actually, we should do it this other way, right? Usually, in fact, you can't. Usually, it doesn't matter how good of an arguer you are. If what you're doing is too different, people don't want to hear it. Um, and we even have stories about that, actually, with Rabbi Eliezer, right, where sometimes a rabbi who wants to do something too differently gets sort of cast out by his colleagues. So an interesting thing to think about in the back of our mind for this class and really for next class is what about Rabbi Akiva's personality allows him to challenge people so deeply and still not be, challenged, be accepted by them as one of them? Okay. Here we have a nice story about how poor Rabbi Akiva is, which I'm going to skip. Um, it seems to be connected to something else, but Rabbi Akiva, he's so poor, he connects bundles of sticks, he burns them. Um, his neighbors don't like all the smoke, and he's like, they want to buy him candles, and he's like, no, I need the sticks because I need them for heat and for light and for sleeping on, right? Like, he's sleeping on sticks and burning them for light, staying warm by them, like, he's quite poor, right? The poverty of Rabbi Akiva is kind of a theme that will come out later also. Um, and then it, the, 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 the Midrash here goes on, right? Rabbi Akiva kind of sets the standard for poor people because anybody who says, oh, I couldn't learn Torah because I was poor, well, look at Rabbi Akiva. He was dirt poor or stick poor, right? And he, right, and he started when he was 40 and he still learned more Torah than you, so that's no excuse. And here we have a little allusion to the fact that his wife um, helped him do that, which, we'll, I, as I said, we'll meet later. Okay, so here we are. He was 40, here's, a, here's the summation. We have Rabbi Akiva, he has this aha moment where he's like, I can change both my intellectual capacity, my knowledge, as well as my attitude towards the rabbis. He comes in, becomes accepted by them, even though he's challenging like most of, much of what they believe. Um, and then here's sort of a summation. He was 40 years old when he went to study Torah. So after 13 years, we're gonna see a number of years like this appear later, he taught Torah in public, um, and they said he didn't leave the world until he had tons and tons of money and his wife had this fancy gold thing. The fancy gold jewelry of his wife will come up in the later story as well. Meaning, Rabbi Akiva's sort of ignoramus to scholar story is paralleled, according to the source, by a rags to riches story, right? Um, which is very convenient. Um, 
And here's sort of an interesting moment of pushback. It's not to his intellectual challenges that the story presents him as getting pushback, but to this sort of his wealth that comes at the end of the story, where his students say to him, Rabbi, biashtanu, right? This is embarrassing, What you, your wife walking around with like, you know, the super fanciest shoes in the country, not shoes, obviously, whatever it is, jewelry, but sort of like something ostentatious um, is embarrassing, right? Amar lahem, he said to them, She suffered greatly with me for the sake of Torah, right? So his wife is in this story, but she's not the catalyst. But it seems like when Rabbi Kiva is sleeping on sticks, she's probably sleeping on sticks also. And he's sort of saying, right, I've been rewarded with my public position. I'm a rabbi. I have all these students. She also deserves something here, right? And implicitly to his students, right, like, don't judge us, right? It's not like you were rushing to help us when we were so poor, right? Like, you weren't worried about her when she was sleeping on sticks. Maybe don't worry about her when she's wearing fancy gold crown. Um, okay. So... That's, that's sort of one origin story, is Rabbi Akiva's personal development, his personal change of heart, change of heart, you like that? Um, he changes his heart with the Torah, right? And his wife is kind of tacked on at the end. That's sort of one version, and it's sort of Rabbi Akiva's own intellectual journey, and he's, one other important thing we've learned about him is that he's such like, he's a unique type of student. So here is just a, an example of what a unique type of student he is. Um, this is from a much longer Agadita, which I happen to love, about the death of Rabbi Eliezer. Um, as some people may know, Rabbi Eliezer ends up, after this, being excommunicated by the other rabbis and lives much of his life sort of not involved in the discussions with the sages. And there's a story of what happens when he's about to die and the rabbis come back to visit him, um, which, as you can imagine, is sort of very heavy in some ways, right? Like, I can't get it. It's a great story. I highly recommend it. Maybe a different, totally different time we will study that. Um, but this time, one of the things that Rabbi Eliezer is saying as he's dying and he's sort of lamenting that he hasn't had the chance to pass on his Torah, he says, right, He's sort of going cataloging all the stuff that he knows that's going to die with him, which is its own approach, meaning there are many things to say about the approach to Torah where like knowledge is just sort of static and it either dies with you or gets passed on as a complete bundle. But he's basically saying, I know all of this stuff. I know 300 things, or some people say 3,000 halachot about Nitiat kishuin. This very, very detailed area of law regarding planting cucumbers by sorcery. I don't know if anyone ever here has ever planted a cucumber by sorcery. Probably not. But apparently there's 300 or 3,000 things to say about it, right? And Rabbi Eliezer knows them. No one ever even asked me about them. It's not like I taught, I was sort of used to talk about them, but I didn't quite get, get to all of my details, or I taught them, but my students didn't learn them. I never even had a chance to bring them out of my own self and tell them to other people, except one person asked me, which is Akiva Ben Yosef. Rabbi Akiva is the only person who ever thought to even ask me about these things. Right? So there's something about Rabbi Akiva that he's not like, as a student, he's not like other students. And that's going to translate into as a rabbi or as a colleague, he's not like other rabbis and colleagues. Okay. Um, before we move on, I wanted to just sort of, I wanted to drive a little bit more into the water metaphor. There's a long passage in 
Shira Shirim Rabbah about all the ways that water is like Torah. Many of us have maybe heard that. In my Torah, water is like Torah. Um, so when you say, right, maybe that's Torah, right? All sorts of things. When we talk about mine, maybe it's really Torah. Certainly in the original metaphor with Rabbi Akiva and the, um, and the well, the idea that the water can write on the stone, therefore the Torah can write on my heart, the water and the Torah are, are equivalent there, right? So there, this, this metaphor is certainly in the background of our story. Um, I, it's a very, there are many, many ways that they're supposed to be parallel. They're not all relevant to us, but I thought some of them kind of were. And they sort of explain the idea of Rabbi Yezer on the one, Rabbi Akiva on the one hand is sort of, you know, he is like the water that can push stuff away, but also he's like using tools to move rocks that then can be formed by water. So do with that what you will, but like the water in the background, even though it's not necessarily Rabbi, Akiva Torah, Rabbi Akiva's Torah itself as the water, I think it's kind of, was enough to bring me here. Um, and I'm particularly interested in one of them, and a few of them, right? Water descends from rivers, so you can learn a little bit, right? I mean, we, we can think about this, right? Water travels in a cycle. This is a song for, for those who have little children. I don't know if I, if you have little children, you're probably not here now, actually, but maybe you have grandchildren or something, or nieces, or I don't know, um, right? Water travels in a cycle. Yes, it does. So it goes, it goes up as evaporation. It forms clouds as condensation. It comes down as precipitation, right? You can imagine singing that in the, in the tune, right? And as precipitation, right, it starts as like rain and then it gets into like little, you know, puddles and then it gets into streams. This is like, you know, streams, rivers, ocean, whatever. So learning can be the same thing. You can start with little raindrops and you can end up with an ocean. And that's exactly what Ruby Kiva did, right? Just as water is not pleasing to a person who is not thirsty, so Torah is not appreciated unless a person is thirsty for it, right? Again, right, how did we get into Rabbi Akiva and Avot Rabbi Natan? Because the Mishnah said, I think, right? You should be thirsty for their words. Sorry, right? You should drink their words thirstily. Rabbi Akiva is sort of seen as thirsty. Just as water leaves the high places and goes to the low places, we call that gravity, right? Right? Torah will leave somebody who has too high of an opinion of himself and will cling to someone who has a lower opinion of himself. And this is part of what's at play at the end of the Rebbe Akiva story, where he was willing to undergo so much hardship in order to learn Torah because he didn't see himself as so important, right? Certainly not his physical stature. Um, maybe part of what his students are pushing back on is, isn't it a little haughty for your wife to be dressed this way? And he says, no, she's in, she's in the same boat as me. She has the right values. It just seems like fair for her to get something in return. Um, right, water, you're supposed to keep it in sort of lowly vessels. Um, and just as a scholar is not embarrassed, right, there's no sort of hierarchy. When you're thirsty, you'll ask for water from anybody. So too, you can learn Torah from anybody. Um, and finally, just as if you don't know how to float, you'll drown. So if you can't really teach words, you'll eventually be swallowed up by them, by the Torah. Um, and this again, right, Rabbi Akiva sort of becomes a person who is known as an expert navigator in some way, a source that's not on our source sheet. Um, Rabbi Akiva and three other, three other rabbis are said to have entered Pardes, right, like sort of entered into some mystical exploration, and three of them get damaged in various ways, and Rabbi Akiva is the only one who 
goes in and comes out sort of unharmed, right? So Rabbi Akiva, there's something unique about him relative to his teachers that's related to his level of commitment as well as his sort of ability to change his mind and be flexible and see things from a new perspective, okay? So that's sort of our first source. Rabbi Akiva is introduced. We know, we know from later sources he's going to be this very knowledgeable and revolutionary thinker, but he's introduced as he maybe part of the reason that he becomes that person is because he comes from nowhere, okay? That's, that's version one of Rabbi Akiva's story. Here's a slightly different version. Um, this is set out in, in um, it appears in two places. Maybe we'll read, I'll read this one for now. It appears in Ketubot and Nidarim in the Talmud Bavli. This, if you like academic Talmud articles, there's a link at the end of this document to this art, um, article by Shama Friedman called A Good Story Deserves Retelling, the unfolding of the Akiva legend, where he tries to sort of trace the development of this story as a text over time and where different details came from and what the original is and whatever. Um, it's a little technical, but it might be interesting. Um, and he sort of, I, I'm following him when he break, breaks it into paragraphs this way to sort of show the parallels of the elements. I'm not sure we're gonna be able to do this work now, but just for your information, right? The, here, we, I sort of numbered everything. In the Dharam, the same numbers correspond to like the same element of the story as it's told in that second version. So let's start with this version. Okay, there's a Mishnah in Ketubot. Ketubot is about, Ketubot literally means sort of marriage contracts. It's about the marital obligations of husbands to wives, mostly. And in return, when you have to pay them, when you don't, right, the Ketubah is actually a payment that's payable upon death or divorce of the husband right? And the question is, when do you have to pay it? When do you not have to pay it? One of the things that can cause the ketubah payment to go up or down is if one of the parties refuses sexual intercourse, because that's sort of like a baseline part of a marriage. So there's a lot of discussion in the mission of like, well, how long is too long? What does refusing mean? And there's a list, some people might find this amusing, right? There's a list of like different professions and how frequently they're supposed to have relations with their wives, okay? And one of them is, and in general, right, like you, it's subject to sort of the agreement or consent of the wife, right? If the wife doesn't mind, if you go on a long business trip, then you can obviously go on a long business trip. So students, right? Students here mean students of Torah. They can go learn Torah, even without their wife's permission for 30 days, which is long time, moderately long time, okay? Um, so that, that's sort of where this Rabbi Akiva story is situated in a Gemara. It's not really about Rabbi Akiva, it's about the question of rabbis or students or scholars leaving their wives for long periods of time to study Torah. There's an opinion that appears in the Gemara after this mission that says, oh, actually, it's up to one or two years without permission. And then there's a series of stories. And the stories sort of have, at the beginning, they start with increasingly tragic endings. Like, so-and-so left his wife for a year, and then he came back, and they both died. Um, actually, and usually it's only one or the other that died, but there's a lot of stories that are sort of like, Oh, really? Chachamim, you think that, but maybe it's actually not such a good idea, which is a classic case of kind of the, the agadic version of sort of the, the stories of the Talmud undercutting the laws that the Talmud claims to be teaching. So here we have it, and in that litany of stories of rabbis leaving their wives, we have a story of Rabbi Akiva, and this is kind of like the redemptive story, where it's not leaving his wife without permission, and therefore the outcome is not tragic. Um, so Rabbi, it starts like this. Rabbi Akiva was a shepherd of Ben Kalba Sagua, 
and he's, his wife, sorry, his daughter, meaning Ben Kalbasavua, this wealthy guy, saw that he was Tsania Umale. He was humble and refined, okay? Which is kind of like already interesting, right? His humility is um, the thing that's highlighted about him, which I think is very much related to his capacity to change, as we saw it before. Um, she said, if I, right, if I get betrothed to you, will you go study in the house of the rabbis, in the study hall? Meaning, he said, yes, right? So they got secretly engaged, right? Interesting, right? the word sania and sina appears, right? He was humble, and then they got humbly sort of secretly engaged. Um, and her father got really angry and, you know, wrote her out of the world, basically, right? Cut her off. So she's the daughter of the wealthy landowner. I always think of the Princess Bride when I read this. Okay, um, for those who maybe have the same cultural references as I do, right? So her father is the wealthy landowner. She wants to marry the farm boy. Her father gets really mad, okay? So, but you know, so there they are. They're a poor young couple. And he, part of the deal is that he's gonna go study Torah. So he goes and studies for 12 years, right? He went and studied for 12 years, not in his hometown, it sounds like, right? If we wanted to map this onto the details of our first story, we would say, oh, this is after he learns Torah in the Cheder and he learns how to read, he has to go to Rabbi Lezer and Rabbi Yeshua. But I don't, I don't know that the stories have to be exactly parallel in that way. The point is he's going away from home to study, right? Right, and he came home with 12,000 students, right, 1,000 per year. Again, like when you see these big numbers and round numbers, like it's sort of a, it's a literary motif, right? So he's coming back with 12,000 students. As he approaches the home, an old man was telling his wife, right? How long are you going to be a living widow? Meaning like technically you're married, your husband hasn't been here for 12 years, you're slaving away, you're poor, like, what is wrong with you? In the other version of the story, he says, your father was right to disown you because you made a terrible mistake. He's a bad husband, right? And she says to him, She said, well, if he would listen to me, he would go study for another 12 years. Rabbi Akiva's like approaching the house. He hears this outside and he's like, oh, okay, turns around and goes away. Okay? In this version of the story, he doesn't even come inside, it sounds like, right? Um, he says, Amar birashud ka'avidna, right? Meaning he was only coming home because he felt bad leaving her alone. But now that she says she doesn't mind, he turns right back around. He went back and studied for another 12 years in the study. Okay. So after 24 years, kiata, aite bahade esrin ba'arba alfe tamid. Right, so now he's been away for 24 years. He has 24,000 students. Remember at the very beginning of the class, there's, other sources about 24,000 students of Rabbi Akiva. Also noticing, right, in our first story, he goes away for 13 years. It turns into 12, which is half of 24, right? The numbers seem to be kind of shifting a little bit to make them nice for whichever story we're in. Um, so he comes back with 24,000 students. Um, Shama Devitu, so his wife hears, she's just going to go see him. So her neighbors are like, well, why don't you at least get some nice clothes on you? Why don't you put on something decent, right? Um, because presumably she's very poor and she's wearing something not very nice looking, right? Um, 
maybe what she's wearing is not even like fully, you know, it's torn or something, like she's not actually fully covered. It's not clear, right? Amr Lahu, she said to them, Yodeat Sadiq Nefesh Behemto, a righteous man understands the life of his beast, which is kind of a strange thing to say, right? What she's really saying is, it sounds like, right, my husband isn't going to care what I'm wearing because we actually have, our relationship is not about what I look like, maybe, right? Like our relationship is connected to the, the soul, right? It's interesting that she calls himself, herself like his animal, like there's a very clearly hierarchical relationship there. Um, I just wanted to note, did I put that? No, the footnote didn't come out. I put a little footnote. Um, so one of the things that Shama Friedman, who's a, a Talmud professor that I mentioned previously, notes, which I did not know until I read that article, is that um, there's another verse in Proverbs in Mishlei that starts the same way, Yodea Tzadik, but it doesn't end with a, a righteous man understands the life of his beast or the soul of his beast. It's a righteous man understands sort of the plight of the poor. And it could be that originally that's the verse that she cites here, right? Meaning Rabbi Akiva is not going to judge me because I'm poor. Sort of, um, you know, he was poor too even, right? So it turns out she's right and everyone else is wrong. And right, and this is kind of like the theme of the two of them understanding something about their relationship that other people don't. We already saw before with her sort of dressing up at the end of their life. Um, so she came to him, she fell on her face and she was kissing him or his feet. And they were trying to push her away. Like, who are you crazy lady? And he said, Shevkuha, leave her alone. Shali v'shalachem shalahu. What's mine and what's yours is actually hers, right? Basically, Rabbi Akiva has been gone for 24 years. But again, the context of this story is about the relationship between husbands and wives and learning Torah and people giving permission. And the story ends with this idea of the whole reason I was able to accomplish what I have successfully is because she gave me permission and not only gave me permission, but encouraged me. So here we have it right here. This story is about the, in some ways it's almost about the wife more than Rabbi Akiva, but it contains some of the same elements, which is Rabbi Akiva starts from nothing. He's extremely poor. He builds up this sort of empire of Torah study over time. And he has a way of understanding things different than the people around him. Part of that is because it's part of his relationship with his wife, but part of that also may be that, right, being away from her for 12 years doesn't fundamentally sort of like change him and make him forget where he comes from. He's still able to maintain, both to have changed his perspective and become a scholar, but also not to forget where he started. Um, and of course, the story has the happy ending where her father heard that Rabbi Akiva is a great man now, he comes, he doesn't even know that it's Rabbi Akiva, actually, he comes and he says, I feel really bad that I um, disowned my daughter. I took a vow that she couldn't have any of my stuff and I kind of wish I hadn't. And Rabbi Akiva says, you know, well, basically the way to undo a vow is to, to give a, something that you didn't realize at the time of the vow. If I had only known blah, 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 then I wouldn't have done it. So Rabbi Akiva says, did you know that Rabbi Akiva would become a great man? He said, no, I didn't think he would even learn one letter. Right, and he says, oh, well, I actually am Rabbi Akiva. And Ben Kabbalah was like, what? Um, so then, you know, Ben Kabbalah was like, well, if I had known he was going to become you, right? But ben Kabbalah was almost like going to him as the great man to undo a vow for his daughter and her poor, pathetic husband. And now, or maybe not for her pathetic husband, because he sees that she's been alone for 24 years and he wants to help her, right? And so, you know, it all comes back together. So now the whole family's together and everybody's rich and it's great. Okay. And then the story ends with Rabbi Akiva's daughter did the same thing for Ben Azai. 
Um, this is very interesting because there are other sources that suggest that Benazai never married. So like, you know, again, how to disentangle the historicity, historical questions is a separate thing. But Rabbi Akiva did the same thing for Benazai, which is the Gemara's way of sort of reinforcing that this is actually a good thing. Um, and then it ends with this little folk saying or two folk saying, one of which is Rachela Bata Rachela, right? A, a you, female sheep, a girl sheep follows a girl sheep, meaning daughters follow their mothers. So people may be aware that the wife of Rabbi Akiva is called Rachel in several later, in one later text and in most common, continuous, most current retellings. There's actually a lovely children's book called Drop by Drop, the story of Rabbi Akiva, which I've read many times and could not find today, um, which if you're ever in the market for like a baby present or something, I highly recommend. So in, it's like a picture book. And in that, you know, the wife has a, a bigger role and she has a name. She's often called Rachel. A lot of people think, this text doesn't give her a name at all, but because it has this little saying about yous following yous and Rachel is new, that maybe it's either that this is a pun on her real name or that the idea that that was her name actually comes from this thing. In any case, right, here is sort of a different version of Rabbi Kiva's origin story, which is focused much less on him and much more on his relationship with his wife. Um, and if we want to sort of characterize what are some of the features of that relationship, one of them is that you know, unlike he was willing to abandon his 40 years of ignoramushood, but he's not going to abandon his wife even after 24 years, right? Um, that he has some kind of loyalty or dedication, and he has a sort of empathy for her where she knows that he's not going to care if she dresses up, and he's not going to care if she approaches him out of propriety because their sort of relationship pre-exists that and is stronger than that. And I guess maybe I'll almost close up with the here, right, this is the Nepal and Nadarim. There are a few interesting differences, um, but this one, right, our, the previous version I started with zero because it starts with a Mishnah that's not present in Nadarim. Um, here, right, it has this whole passage that's not present in ours at all, right? This X is not parallel to anything in Ketubot. So she goes and marries Rabbi Akiva. In the winter, they would sleep in a storehouse of straw, right, similar to we saw them sleeping on sticks, right? And Rabbi Akiva would gather straw from her hair right? So she, they would wake up and she would be like all messy. It's a very like tender image, right? He would take the straw out of her hair and he said, if I only had the money, I would give you this fancy headdress called Jerusalem of Gold. Um, and then Eliyahu Hanavi comes and sort of tests them and says, hey, my wife just gave birth. I don't have anything, even straw. And so they give him some. And Rabbi Kiva says to his wife, see, he doesn't even have straw, right? Meaning we're better off than some people. And she says, go study Torah. Um, so, right, this story, I think, adds a few things. First of all, it adds, like, the, the sort of interpersonal, I think it's just, like, sweet. It adds the interpersonal dynamic, and it, it closes up, this version of the story closes up with what we saw in Avodah Rebbein about who he buys her this fancy headdress called Jerusalem of Gold at the end. Um, you can Google pictures of what people think this might have looked like, right, sort of like a thing that looks like this. Sometimes it's called, like, an ear shell zahav. It's, like, looks, it's sort of like a tableau that goes over your head. Um, so basically, right, if you want to figure out where Rabbi Akiva comes from, the way it's presented in these stories, again, right, like reading these stories and a character, right, the way it's presented is kind of from two angles. On the one hand, he comes from a place of sort of willingness to change, willingness to challenge his assumptions, even at age 40, and forever after that, willing to challenge the assumptions of his teacher, willing to always 
and doing so not by sort of like off the cuff being like, oh, that doesn't make sense, but by like deeply trying to figure stuff out and ask questions, as many questions as he can think of, right? Um, and on the other hand, by being very sort of loyal in an interpersonal close relationship. So I guess one thing that we will see is sort of how do those things go together? Like I said, right? Being the person who's always challenging the rabbis until they don't have an answer is not always the best way to win friends and influence people. But for Rabbi Akiva, it seems to work, right? People actually do like him. And as we'll see next time, they trust him as sort of in very difficult emotional situations that they may not trust anyone else. So that's what we'll look at next time is sort of like how Rabbi Akiva works as a colleague with the other rabbis um, with this baseline of sort of being outside of the box, but also being fiercely loyal. Um, and at the end, we'll talk about the end of Rabbi Kiva's life, which unfortunately does not match sort of the, the beginning in some deep ways. Um, so thank you all for joining. And I hope to see you next week. And happy Yom Hatzot.